The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From Hebrews chapter 10. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Pray with me. Father, these words in this chapter from Hebrews describe a church that we, Lord, I pray, would be transformed to be like. A people who willingly embrace the loss of their earthly goods because they are mindful of their possession of a greater inheritance. Would you make us a people like that with, with our goods and with our time, with all of the, the resources that you place in our hands. Make us a people who release them mindful of something more. Father, You have given us something more in Christ. You have saved us. You've made us Your people by the Gospel and I I praise You for that. And I pray that You would make that reality large to us. You You would cause it to weigh on us and to shine in front of us and be treasured. And Father, please make it transforming. Would You commission Your Spirit now? Would You... Would you send him to? He is here. He abides here in the, in this temple of your church. He lives in the hearts of your people. But would you commission him now to run freely and powerfully through here, so that we would be changed? Would you give me an ability to explain your word and give us an ability to understand it, illumine it, please, and make us a people, Lord, like this church in Hebrews that lets go of its stuff, let's go of its rights. Declines the earthly option to cling to those things. And lets them go. Mindful of a greater inheritance and desiring to honor You. Use Your Word towards that end. Spirit of God, have Your way in us. Honor Christ here in this place, His church, for our good and for His glory. I pray it. Amen. As we turn our attention this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're following Paul as he continues to address in this letter various problems present in the church at Corinth. This, this letter, 1 Corinthians, is Paul's written response to a letter that he himself had received Some folks in the church there had written to him and asked him for some help with various issues. And so he's responding to them. And the first issue that we saw was he deals with the issue of division in the church. He does that for several chapters. He's looking at a church there in Corinth full of pride. Sometimes brash, chest-thumping pride. And sometimes pride can be just a a polite, subtle self-focus like us. Not, not thumping our chests, but fundamentally oriented around ourselves and what we think is appropriate and what we desire. 
Either way, it's pride. He's looking at that in the church and he, and he sees this is the problem behind the division, but the problem behind that is that the gospel's been forgotten. A gospel of grace that undercuts all pride. And so he lifts it up for several chapters. So we looked at that. And last week we saw that he kind of turned the corner a little bit and looked at another issue raised in the letter, surely. But he hasn't really changed issues because the issue of pride is front and center in chapter 5 also mentioned a couple times. He looks at a church there that in chapter 5 that's proud of sin tolerated in its midst. It, it's somehow pleased with, with how accepting it is and how embracing of, of what Paul says it, it should mourn over. So he confronts them and says, this is, this is so wrong. A church should mourn over sin in its midst. And then mourning and seeing how dangerous it is, it should then act to attempt to remove it. To remove it from the church for the church's good and to remove it from the individual for the individual's good. It's redemptive. It was last week, chapter 5. And now in chapter 6 we come to another issue which is again related. Pride is here too. The word's not, but the attitude very clearly is. The church again shows itself to be self-focused. My rights, what I deserve, what I want, how I'm going to get it. One way or the other. It's the church of chapter 6. Self-focused and proud. And boy, we live in America. This should, this should sound like something you know. A culture in which we live and a culture which unfortunately lives in us in which we pursue rights. The things that we deserve, that we should have, that would be appropriate for us. And we go about getting them sometimes any which way looks successful. Paul confronts that, that kind of pride too. And I hope that we are not too far removed from chapter 4 to see just how wrong that is. Chapter 4. End of chapter 4, where Paul calls us to imitate him in living a crucified life. A life where I die to myself. In other words, I lay myself down. My. I lay that down. Meanness. That's chapter 4. We're only in chapter 6. If we were just reading it straight through, it wouldn't take us that many minutes to get here. We're not that far removed. Don't forget because it's been weeks for us. Something really wrong in a church that pursues its rights. Paul's shocked in this section, and we should be too, and we see it and see it in ourselves. So I'm going to read chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, and read it praying that God would use this also to, to confront us. And keep in mind, there, there's a, a confrontation here, but where does this come from in the very beginning of the book? It comes from an apostle who looks at a church and is fundamentally delighted because God has saved these folks. Don't, don't lose that. There's a confrontation here, but it's coming from a how pleased I am with you as a people of God. And then let's address this. So with that in mind, may He confront us this morning. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 11. 
When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brothers, brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This whole passage is is draped. I kind of think of it as something falling over the whole passage. It's, it's draped in a large general contrast. You can see it quite easily in verse 1 and in verse 11. The unrighteous and the saints. The unrighteous who do not inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you, but you're not anymore. You were cleansed, washed, changed. So there's the contrast here that shows up throughout the passage in various words like saints, brothers, which of course includes sisters, or on the other hand, the unrighteous, or those who have no standing in the church, the unbelievers. There are these two categories of people here. And to understand what's going on kind of behind this passage, you have to realize that one of these two categories is limited limited in what it can live for and and what it can aspire to and how it can go about getting it. And one has a whole different realm opened up to it. Which is which? Can you think which is the limited one and which is the open one? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's pretty clear. We have a category of people here, the unrighteous, the unbeliever, etc., stuck in this world Period. All you can get, all you can live for, and the only way you can get it is in this world. And then there is another world the believer lives in and lives for. And that difference here drapes over this whole thing. It's in Paul's mind, and it should be in our minds. It should dominate our thinking. It should dominate our perspective, what we live for and how we live for it. But what's alarming is to find a church that lives over here, which is what Paul finds in Corinth. 
And that's why the chapter begins with shock. It's difficult to translate this so that it would make sense in English, but the first word in the chapter is dare. Most of our English translations try to make it a little neater, but it's dare you do this. Not a question. Is this what's going on? But a how in the world can this be what's going on? Shock. Remember the contrast here. Righteous, unrighteous. Those with their minds already in another world and those bound in this one. Dare you? How in the world can you live bound here? He's got a grievance that he's heard of. Two people within the church. This is not someone in the church and someone outside the church. Two people in the church. Two professing believers. Two people in the saint category. One with the grievance against another. And Paul's flabbergasted that Christian would take Christian to court. Take him or her to law to settle this. How can you go to law before the unrighteous? Two people from one category going over here into this category to the unrighteous to do something, to use our language, suing somebody. Following a lawsuit in the, in the civil court of the land. He's flabbergasted they would do that. Two people going to the other category for help. That's the problem that's restated in verse 4 also. And to be clear... Our translations differ here, but to be clear what, what's, what he's getting at, he, when he says someone with no standing, he's not talking about a Christian. Literally what he says there is someone who is disdained or despised of no worth in the church. That's not how Paul talks about Christians. He's talking about a non-Christian there. So verse 4 is stating the same thing as verse 1. How can it be that you would go before people who have no standing in this world, over here, are bound only over here in this place. How can you go there? How can you do that? Why you shouldn't do that is in the middle then in verses 2 and 3. Two rhetorical questions. Do you not know? Twice in 2 and 3. Also in verse 9. Do you not know? Of course they know. The point is they're not remembering it. They're not thinking down this path. Do you not know? Two things about coming realities. We will judge the world and we will judge the angels, fallen angels. We who live in this category, we have another time coming, another place where we will sit and judge all of that. All of the physical realm, all the spirit. We will sit in judgment over that. Don't you think that we're competent to handle some trivial stuff? It's as if he puts it, piddly things? Don't you think? And how wrong, we're competent, how wrong it is that we would then revert back over here. This is absurd. He's shocked by it. Verses 1 to 6 then. Paul's main problem in verses 1 to 6. Where they are going to resolve their disputes. Saints, qualified to judge the world, but going to the world to judge them. It's wrong. But it gets worse in verse 7. 
Because then he takes it kind of up a level and says, you know, in fact, not only are the saints acting like the unrighteous in where they go to get their disputes resolved, saints acting like the unrighteous in the very fact that they have disputes to be resolved. That's a problem. That you even have a mind to fight for things that belong to this realm. Win or lose, it's already a defeat for you. Verse 7. When you fight for the things in this realm and fight by the means of this realm, defrauding and wronging each other, verse 8, in the courts of this realm, oh, church. Church. You are saints, brothers. But you're walking just like the unrighteous. Such were some of you, but you've been changed. Look how he brings the gospel to this. This is if Paul continues to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. Here he is talking about lawsuits, and up comes the gospel. You were changed from that to be a people who should have your minds and your hearts completely over here in this realm, and you don't. Oh, that's terrible. I'm going to say more about verses 9 to 11 next week. So I'm only giving very, a very brief treatment to 9 to 11, but I need to read it now and just touch on it because it's connected. Kind of his, his solution to this lies in at the very end. I need to go all the way to verse 11. Something has happened to you that has caused you to change categories. Don't go back. There's a change that has happened. And the main point of the whole passage is this then. There's a change that you have experienced in Christ that must change and can change. That must change your perspective on personal rights. Where you pursue them and how you pursue them. There's a change that we have experienced in Christ that must change our perspective on our personal rights. I'm going to unpack that in in two points. My first observation is this. God has equipped the church to judge the church in matters of personal rights. This I kind of regard as the obvious first level observation. We're going to work on this a little bit, but I think there's something more important that's coming in the second one. But the first level, right on the surface, God has equipped the church to judge, to evaluate, to render a verdict on matters of personal rights in the church. Note that we're talking about personal rights, individual grievances. To use some modern terminology, this would be something that is not criminal law, but civil law. So criminal law, the state is the plaintiff. The state is the prosecutor. In civil law, it's me. Criminal law belongs in the state. If you see a crime happen, call the police, not the church. That, that's, that's the divide. Now, I'm, I'm no lawyer, so there may be some subtleties there. But, but understand, we're not talking about things like murder, crime. This is civil grievances. 
And on matters of personal rights, God has equipped and does expect then that the church would judge the church. This is clear from several verses in, in the first paragraph. Verse 1, his shock that someone would, would, from the righteous would go to the unrighteous. Amazing that verse 2 is several then rhetorical questions. Why do you do this? Could it be that you're incompetent? He doesn't mean that they are. He's, he's asking a rhetorical question. Don't you think that we're capable of doing this? How can you go before unbelievers? Clearly he means for them to stay before believers in the church. Before those who have the mind of Christ, who have the word of Christ, who have the spirit of Christ. And he roots it, as I said, two and three, in the fact that we will be judges in the future. We should think of ourselves as equipped to judge, not not perfectly, but along with God who will judge the world, the Bible says we will too. He doesn't go in to explain that because he assumes they know that. Do you realize that? We have some things. Now, they're growing in us. We're not complete. But we have some things. We have the Word. We have the Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. There's something in us that's going to put us in a spot to evaluate the world and fallen angels. Piddly stuff here we can handle. And are best equipped to handle because we have the Word and the Spirit, the mind of Christ. We're competent. And it also means the fact that we will judge the world and the angels in the future also means not just that we're competent, but more profoundly, this brother that you're taking to court, this sister that you're taking to court, the two of you see it in your mind's eye. The two of you, arm in arm with God, will judge this judge to whom you are going to try to get him to convict your brother. Is that not crazy? It should just strike you as wrong. One commentator said, it should just strike you as wrong in this sense. What kind of a fool makes his enemy the arbiter between him and his friend? What kind of a fool does that? You hate us. You evaluate us. It's just, it's just that simple at, at the one level. So clearly, he means this belongs in the church. So right off at the first level, this is the simple instruction. Christians have no business taking Christians to court in pursuit of their personal rights. It could not be any clearer. Now, the church is not a court in a technical sense, so we, we don't use words like trial, but we should use words like mediation. point is clear. Christian grievances, Christians at odds with Christians over personal rights, which is usually involving money and property. We take those things to other mature, wise Christians and say, here. And I say wise Christians because not all Christians are created equal. In some sense, obviously we are. But in some sense, the the maturing process is not all at the same place. And God gives different gifts of, of wisdom and discernment to people. So we should be mindful of that when we think about the church in general. 
But the grievances that we have with one another belong before the body, before wise Christians. Which probably seems, I think, a little odd to us. And maybe even a little irrelevant. Because if you're like me, and probably most of us are, if you're like me, you're thinking, I've never hired a lawyer for anything. I've never sued anybody. And frankly, I've never even been really involved in a lawsuit. So I suppose I could say shame on Corinth, but I'm not sure how this applies to me. That's, that's where I sit at least. I mean, I've not been, this isn't my realm. What does it mean for us? Well, I have a couple of thoughts. The first one, maybe a little obvious, is that it might matter for you one day. And it might be helpful for you to know. There's some instruction here. It might be helpful for you to know, what do I do when the Christian contractor that I hired to rehab my house we find out via the water damage that he or she didn't do that great of a job. What do we do? Where do you go with that? Well, Matthew 18 would give us some instruction. You go to that person first. But this passage, Matthew 18, they fit together. At the end of the day, we don't go to court. We go to the church if he or she's a Christian. So it's informing us. It might matter one day for you to be convinced of how things like this are are to be dealt with. And it might matter for you to, to know that this church is committed to obeying this passage. In other words, we, as a, as a corporate body, we stand committed to helping believers sort through things like this. We will engage on financial issues, property issues, and we are in touch with other organizations that can help us with this kind of stuff. We can provide expertise on things. So you should come to the church There are people who, by the grace of God, are competent to handle things like this here in this body where it belongs. Christians with grievances should come to other Christians who have the Spirit and have the Word of God, the mind of Christ, to to resolve these things. So it might matter to you one day in that sense, but there's something else that we should think about here. Because this tells us, it gives us a principle here to think about what do we do with grievances of all sorts? Not just legal or financial or property-related things. Grievances of all sorts are to be resolved in the church. The church is to deal with its conflicts and resolve them before they spill over into the non-believing world and cast a a black mark on the church as we squabbling brothers go to non-believers and say, we can't fix this, you help us. We are to judge the world and we argue with them that we're going to judge the world, but we're not competent to judge ourselves. That makes no sense. Paul says all of our grievances 
are resolved here. Those that are officially prosecuted in a court and those that are not officially prosecuted in a court but are prosecuted in living rooms and coffee shops everywhere. Guilt assigned and the evidence produced belongs in the church before mature Christians. So, right here at the surface, this is the first, I think, clearest, easiest point. Paul is concerned, shocked even, that Christians would go before non-believers. However, there's something that I think is a little more important that sits kind of beneath this. Because he's not just responding to a, a question about where should we go resolve our conflicts? Should we go to civil courts or should we go to the church? And he answers it kind of in the, the, the innocent abstract. He's shocked by a course of action that if you think about this, comes from somewhere. All of our actions come from somewhere. He's shocked by what this action shows about the hearts behind it. What it shows about what they love. What they're focused on. What they're striving after. What they believe will give them life. And that's going to lead us to the second observation, which is more important. I'm going to say this positively, although Paul does not put it positively in the text. He's, he's got a, a little bit of a pop to it. I'm going to say it positively, though, and work on it. In Christ, God has provided life for us apart from the pursuit of our personal rights. In Christ, which I'm, I'm using that to describe the work that God has done to save us. In Christ, God has provided life for us apart from, separate from, the pursuit of our personal rights. This comes up especially in verse 7 when he switches from I can't believe that the church is pursuing its, its personal rights in the courts of the land to, I can't, I can't, I'm just flabbergasted the church is so intent on pursuing its personal rights, period. The fact that you even have grievances is wrong. That's verse 7. To have a lawsuit at all is already a defeat for you. Not just where you go with it, but the fact that you are... What's behind a lawsuit? Not just a disagreement. We're, we're going to disagree about stuff. We're going to see things differently. That's not a problem. It's when a disagreement becomes disagreeable. It's when I get to a point where I want something and I want it so much that I'm going to create a conflict and force it from you. That's what's going on here. And once you get to that stage, you lose. Even if you win. It's already defeat for you, he says in verse 7. 
something going on in you. When you get to that point, there's something going on in you. You're revealing something going on in you that my life, I believe, my life is found in this thing that, that you are thwarting. I want, but I can't have. And so I'm going to, as James 4 says, perhaps murder, perhaps get angry, or maybe take you to court to get it. Because I believe that I need it. My life is found in that. You're lost. You're lost. Even if you get it, you're lost. That's his concern for them. That's far more important than where you go. The fact that your heart wants to go is a problem. And he would have that same concern for us, church. We do this. Sometimes by taking people to court and, and playing the, the, the games of the, of the day, wronging and defrauding the, the brethren. Sometimes we do it in court, probably not most often. But to just keep it at a court level, we, we, miss, the, we miss the point. We pursue the stuff of this world as if our lives are found in it. Such were some of you. That used to be all you had and all you could get. Not anymore. Why do you go back? Your life is not found in the stuff that you can get here or hold on to here. It is not found in your material possessions, in your money, in your reputation, in your right to be heard and understood. It isn't. Why do you fight for it? And do you realize every time you're in a conflict with somebody, you're fighting for it? That's what's going on in a conflict. You're fighting for it. Why not rather suffer wrong and be defrauded? That's crazy talk. Who in the world would rather be wronged and defrauded? How can he say that? That makes no sense at all. Well, think about it. It is, in fact, better for you, church. It is better for you to be wronged and defrauded. To embrace the life of dying to self and bearing your cross and walking the road of shame and humiliation and misunderstanding and ridicule and scorn and abuse and loss and death, who do you find on that road? Whose road is that? Chapter 4. It's Paul's road. It's Jesus' road. That's the road he walks. He does not walk the road of acclaim and status and wealth and security. He's a man of sorrows rejected and scorned. Pick your path. It is far better for you, brothers and sisters, far better to walk the path that Jesus walks than to fight successfully and acquire and attain and secure all the stuff of this world that is perishing. 
poof, gone in a moment. You find on that path one who is actually life for you. Suppose you're a a wife. As I thought about this, I tried to figure out, do I want to say wife? Do I want to say husband? Do I want to say child? Because all three have the same issue. And all three are front and center issues in our church. So I picked wife. In the end, not because I had particular women in mind, but because I thought it just made it cleaner. But if you're a child or if you're a husband, think this through for yourself too. Suppose you're a wife married to a man who by general standards has wronged and defrauded you. That rarely happens, I know. It happens frequently. By general standards, he's wronged and defrauded you. Wronged you in that he insults you sometimes and neglects you at others and is domineering in some ways. Frankly, uses most of the family's time and resources for his own goods and for his own good, for his own ends. When he's not at work, he's playing golf. When he's not playing golf, he's hunting. And when he's not hunting, he's watching sports on TV. He's wronging you and defrauding you because you didn't marry him under those conditions. He didn't say, honey... Would you like to be my fifth priority? (laughs) He defrauded you. Right? He said, and he vowed, we saw it yesterday, he pledged something completely different than what you've got now. What do you do with that? Well, do you fight him over it? The world would tell you you deserve better than that. You should fight him for it. You should strive for a change. Maybe you should get rid of him entirely. Or if that's not kind of in the cards, probably what you should do is seek sympathy from all your friends by trashing him. That's how this realm works. Because this realm believes that you got a raw deal and you must somehow rectify that. Fix it. Get a better husband if you can. If he can't, then at least get some vengeance on him. Make his life miserable too. It is better for you, better than that, it is better for you to be wronged and defrauded. Why? Because rather than responding that way, you say... I will entrust myself to Him who judges justly. And I will not fear anything that is fearful. This is from 1 Peter 2 and 3. And I will not fear anything that is fearful. Resting in the hands of this great bridegroom with my eye set on the future where He will fix everything for me And mindful of the fact that even now He has broken into this time and this place, cleansed me, washed me, made me His own, secured me with Himself, come to live inside of me. With that mind, 
I will turn and without a word seek to win him, though he disobeys the word. Seek to bless him when persecuted. When slandered, entreat. Chapter 4. And, and wife, or understand, I could have said husband, child. In that place, enduring the wrong and defrauding that is real and is actually wrong. It's masked in our English translations, but the word for wrong there is just the verbal form of the word unrighteous. You are being unrighteous. It's true. But facing that even, finding your life in this One who is who is Himself life, you can, you can turn and you can deal with this person rightly and appropriately. And sometimes then for that person's good, you confront it and bring it to the church and say, there is something that should be resolved here. I'm not angry over it. But for this person's good, I'm going to bring it to light. Not out of vengeance. For this person's good, I'll bring it to light before the church. You've got to do that sometimes. After. After you hide your own heart in Christ. We should rather be wronged in such situations because of who we find and what we find out about Him in those situations that God knows we don't often find when everything's going peachy keen and we're leaning on all of this stuff and it's working out just like we hoped. He actually blesses us through hardships. We should view it like that. And preferable to fighting, we should say, to endure the wrong and the defrauding is good for me and it honors Christ as I show to the world around I'm a different person. We have experienced a change in Christ. And it must and, cha- it, must and it can change our perspective on our personal rights on where we pursue them and on how we pursue them. Not to get the things that I think will give me life, but finding life somewhere else. I think as I work through us as a church and as I work through the book of 1 Corinthians, I'm continually impressed with with two basic things. That we are a church that needs to grow and this book is hammering on self-orientation. It's got different angles all the time, but it's constantly confronting a people who are oriented around themselves. Who are proud. And we are a people who needs to grow, who need to grow in this area or flip it around, who need to grow in humility. So here's another way put before us this morning, church. 
You've been changed. If you're a Christian, you've been changed. You've been given a whole nother realm in which you live, in which your mind should be, on which your mind should be focused, in which you should find life. Will you rest in that and hold all the things here very loosely? Or will you revert back over here and fight finding your life, you hope, in this stuff? Which will it be? You, you can't decide for us, but you can decide for you. Will you let go of your rights to your property? Yes. I think maybe even a little more to your reputation, to how you are esteemed or valued. Will you let go of all that? I plead with you, church. You've been changed, and that should change your perspective on how you view your personal rights. Let go of them. Maybe God will speak to you now. Take some time here and ask Him. What do you have here for me? Is there anything in that that applies to me? Take a minute or two and pray, and then I'll close this and we'll move to communion. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.